Okay, so that is chapters 13 and 14. Now, they bring Absalom back. He's lived two full years in Jerusalem without coming into the king's presence. So a lot of time has passed. We read these chapters really fast, but now we've had like five years since the incident with Amnon. Uh, and he's just kind of wishing that he was back in Gesher. He's, he's like, it would have been a lot better for me if I just stayed there. People actually like, or you know, the king actually likes me there. I'm welcome at his table. So what does Absalom do? Because he's mad. You guys remember? Yeah, burnt Joab's field. It's a childish thing to do. <laughs> so Joab, that gets his attention, and he's like, what is wrong with you? What do you want? And that's when it comes out. Well, I just, you know, he won't, why does he even want me here? Why does the king want me here if he's not going to have anything to do with me? It's basically what Absalom is saying. It would have been better for me if I just stayed where I was. So Joab goes to the king, and then uh, they, they do reconcile, at least to some, some way, shape, or form. The, the very end of chapter 14, So he came to the king, Absalom, and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. We're going to, like, just hold on to that little snippet. We'll come back to that in a minute. The king kissed Absalom. So that's like a sign of, you know, mercy, forgiveness. So they've sort of made up, but things still aren't right between them. There's a, I think there's a difference between true, I mean, there's a difference between, like, forgiveness, but true reconciliation. Like, the, if you reconcile with someone, you really work that out. And there's no working it out <laughs> here between the two of them. So chapter 15 then is when Absalom really shows a lot more of his character. And right off the bat, the very beginning of chapter 15, after this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. Okay, there's a couple interesting things here. Chariots and horses at this point in time in history, is really a symbol of hostility against God. Because who, are, who usually has chariots and horses? It's not the Israelites. God actually told them not to have too many. Because some trust in chariots and some trust in horses, but we trust in the Lord our God. That was how Israel thought. So, so far in the Bible, chariots have been portrayed as a mostly negative thing. They're owned by the Egyptians. We see the the Israelites get chased by the Egyptians um, in chapter in Exodus 14 and 15. And then in the Canaanites. They're off, oftentimes the Israelites are scared to fight the Canaanites because of all the chariots and horses that they have. So it's kind of interesting that it's, this is sort of giving us like a, uh-oh, like a stop sign. This might not be good. Might be setting himself up against the Lord here with this whole chariot and horses thing. And then it's interesting that he says 50 men ran before him. Because back in 1 Samuel 8, Samuel warned us about this, where he gives the consequences of what it would like be like for Israel to have a king. And he actually says, chapter 8, verse 11, These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to his horsemen and to run before his chariots. So that's kind of interesting. There's a direct fulfillment right there of Absalom doing that. I just, I think those little tidbits really fun. Uh, but then he goes to the gate and intercepts everyone coming into the kingdom or anyone coming to see David. 
he gets there first. He's totally working it. He's just, this is such a politician. <laughs> That's what I kept thinking. He would he'd fake personal interest, you know, from what city are you from? He'd act like he's really interested in who they are. Uh, it was the king's responsibility to administer justice in different situations. So Absalom is acting like a king, but he's not really administering justice in any of these. He's just saying that he would if he could. You know, if he had charge of the kingdom, he would do a great job. And he kind of makes it sound like David is just slacking in his responsibility. So he's trying to make David look really bad. In verse 5, it says, And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. So th these words, take hold and kiss him, are actually the same words that we have back with, I believe, with Amnon and Tamar. So uh, several of the commentaries mentioned this. Absalom, in a sense, is raping Israel. And Israel doesn't realize it because totally faking it. He's promising things he can't do. He's acting like he's this great guy. But you also notice the kiss them thing. Well, David just kissed Absalom, right? In an act of, I guess, mercy. And so now we see Absalom trying to set up like he's this great, merciful king who's going to take care of them because David won't. And this goes on for four years. Now, some translations do say 40. And in those trans it, it, there's a discrepancy there, but I'm going to stick with four years. But if, it's, if, the, if your translation says 40, they're getting at that this is, the end, this is towards the end of David's reign. That's what they're trying to get at. After 40 years of David's reign, his time. So they're saying this is at the end. But four years' time, according to the ESV, that Absalom has been doing this. He has set himself up at the, as the king. And now he goes, oh, so what's he do? He says that he made a vow, right? And he says he has to go and fulfill this vow. Well, according to, if you want to write this down, Deuteronomy 23, 21, you're supposed to fulfill vows quickly. It's been four years, or maybe more, six years, that he's been in Gesher. So this should be a red flag also. He did not fulfill his, if he did make a vow, he should have fulfilled it a long time ago to the Lord. But he says, let me fulfill a vow that I made when I lived at Gesher, uh, that if the Lord would indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. A little punk. He's even pretending that he's going to go worship the Lord, right? He's just, he's just using God, trying to get, make his own way here. Uh, and so he has this conspiracy that is growing. He's going to bring all of these people out to Hebron, where David was first crowned king. Remember, he was king in Hebron for seven years, I believe, first, before he went to Jerusalem. So he gets all these people to Hebron, and he even steals away 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited guests, and they went innocently, knew nothing about it. Well, you just think about those men getting themselves in that situation. If you want to walk out the door because you want to go stand by David, you're probably going to have a spear in your back before you actually get out the door. I mean, they were trapped. They couldn't go back and help David. And this is sort of uh, 
uh, I hate to admit it, but brilliant on Absalom's part because he left David with very few people to help him and support him and help him figure out what to do. So then when you get to the next section of chapter 15 and David flees, you know, you're like, why is he fleeing? Why did you stay and fight? I'm not sure he had that many people at that point organized to help him fight. Absalom had taken a bunch of people to Hebron. Yes, they kept increasing. Mm-hmm. Right. So to the people, I mean, it's, it's like today in a way. There's a lot of things the government is promising that look great to the people. They're great, you know. They're not great. No. None of it's great. And unless, I really think unless you have the Holy Spirit and wisdom from the Lord, you can't see it. And you don't understand it. And so I think a lot of Israel is thinking, this guy's great. Mm-hmm. You know, this is, David's old. We need a new king anyway. This is the king's son. Oh, and we didn't talk about this. Did we? No. He was the most handsome in all the land. Oh, we skipped right over that part. Okay. He was the most handsome. Uh, verse. No blemish. I'm like, come on. This guy was one blemish. But did this narrator really see him? Because Noah's perfect, okay? That's right. So handsome. Soul from the soul. Yes. The soul seat. I mean, handsome feet, this guy, to the crown of his head. No blemish on him at all. Okay. And when he cut his hair at the end of every year, he used to cut it when it was heavy on him. Poor guy. His hair was so heavy. And I believe he would weigh 200 shekels. It's like five pounds. This guy has some hair. I know. Every year? That's a lot of hair. That is. I wouldn't mind knowing his secret. (laughs) What's interesting about that is, that's kind of ironic, but back when the woman was talking to David, uh, he promises the woman to her fake son that not a hair of his head shall fall to the ground. In verse 11 of chapter 14. Not a hair, as the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. And then look, not one hair of Absalom's head is falling to the ground. They cut it and weigh it. It doesn't fall to the ground. Isn't that kind of interesting? I can't believe we skipped right over that. I thought that was so funny. Okay, okay, so David does flee. One thing that I read is that David cared so much about the city of Jerusalem that he did not want any fighting to take place there. He wanted it to happen elsewhere. Mm -hmm. So that's why he left 10 concubines because they were not fighting material so that the fighting would happen elsewhere. Uh, But then it's just interesting, the parade of people that David comes across, right, as he's walking. I have to speed up just a little bit here. So first... He, who does he come across? Uh, let's see. The Cherethites, the Pelethites, 600 Gittites, all these people from Gath, all the ites, they're all going with him. Yeah, his servants are with him. They're like, yes, we will go with you. Uh, and then he, he does a tie, the Gittite. That's an interesting one because he just got there yesterday. Did you guys catch that? Uh, verse 20 of chapter 15, you came only yesterday, and shall I today make you wander about with us since I go? I know not where. Go back and take your brothers with you, and may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. But Atai answered the king, as the Lord lives, and as my lord the king lives, wherever my lord the king shall be, 
whether for death or for life, there also will be your, your servant will be. Wow. Crazy, right? And this guy just got there yesterday, and he is committed. So he's got this group of people traveling with him now. We don't know how many, quite a few. <clears throat> does have all of his wives and children with him also. And then come along the religious community. Abathar came up, and Zadok, and then they bring the ark with them. Uh, but David actually does what with the ark? Sends it back. He doesn't want the ark traveling with them. And he says, if I have found favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. So he wants the ark to stay there in Jerusalem. David then really, sub he is submissive to God's will in this chapter, also in chapter 16. He submits, you know, whatever God's will, he's accepting the consequences of his sin, for sure, and trusting the Lord. I had you guys read Psalm 3 in your homework, uh, because that psalm says it was written at the time that he flees from Absalom. So, he wrote it at some point during this. And, and David's trust in God is very evident in that psalm. It doesn't waver. So, we don't know what David was thinking or feeling, but he was trusting the Lord during this entire episode. He says in Psalm 3.3, But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. And then th I thought this was interesting. I lay down and slept. We don't, he, I don't, we don't even know where he's sleeping, whether it's next to Jordan River, out in the wilderness, but he says this, I lay down and slept, I woke again. Praise the Lord for that. For the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. So once again, he finds himself on the run, but he is trusting the Lord. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. For you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. What's sad is that it's his own son at this point. That's an enemy. But at this point, then, David starts to kind of form this plan in his head, right? So he sends the priests back. He sends their sons back. And then he hears that Ahithopel, Ahithopel, which we're going to talk more about next week, he was a very wise man. And in verse 31, it says, It was told David, Ahithopel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O oh Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithopel into foolishness. So, um, I want to make sure that this didn't, okay. Please turn into foolishness, and right away then, verse 32, while David was coming to the summit where God was worshipped, behold, Hushai the archite came to meet him with his coat torn and dirt on his head. Hushai is David's, is God's immediate answer to David's prayer. So God is with David, even at this time. I think when he saw Hushai, that is his good friend. They were good friends. And Hushai is mourning, but David has this idea. He sees this is my answer, and he sends him back to the kingdom because he knows that Hushai can actually get into the palace. And then he can tell the priests what's going on, and the priest's sons can bring the information to him so that he can be privy to what's going on in Jerusalem. So you see the wheels turning. And David, you do see him forming this plan. He had to flee very quickly because at the bottom of the page in verse 37, it says, So Hushai, David's friend, came into the city just as Absalom was entering Jerusalem. 
So these things were all happening fast. David is just barely out of town, and Hushai makes it in, and then he does a splendid acting job next week that we're going to talk about um, and pretends that he is for Absalom, but he's not. Then chapter 16 is interesting. You get Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth. He comes with all kinds of supplies for David, along with donkeys, and they left so quickly, and it's very possible that uh, Absalom had already taken all the donkeys to Hebron with all his people. They didn't have any left, so the wives, children, they're all walking, and this is not an easy walk. So where they're walking to is, as I understand it, because I've never been there, but you have Jerusalem, and they're walking like kind of out the east side, I believe. I might be totally wrong on that. But my brother, well, my sister-in-law is going to listen to this, and then my brother will correct me. We'll, so we'll find out later if I'm right on this. But I think he's walking out the east side, and I think Hebron is over here somewhere, and so Absalom is coming in this side, David's going this side, and he's going out the Mount of Olives, which should sound familiar to us, and then he's going this direction towards, like, Jericho. Jericho is over this way, okay? And I've been studying that because I've been studying the triumphal entry, so we're going to come back to that in a minute. So he's going this way, Absalom's coming in this way, and it was a really difficult walk between Jerusalem and Jericho. I don't know if he's exactly going to Jericho, but Jericho is on the edge of the Jordan River. So he's heading in that direction, and it kind of makes it sound like there's really just one road, and it's not an easy walk going that direction. So anyway, Mephibosheth, or Ziba comes, and he makes it sound like Mephibosheth has totally turned on him, on David, that he stayed, and... Verse 3, he says, and the, let's see, and where is your master's son? Where's Mephibosheth? And Ziba said to the king, Behold, he remains in Jerusalem, for he said, Today the house of Israel will give me back the kingdom of my father. Okay, how dumb is that? that, that David should have been able to see right through that. Because why would Mephibosheth think that selfish Absalom is going to give him the kingdom. Like, no, that's dumb. And yet David makes a really quick judgment here and says, oh, okay, well, behold, all that belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours. They're going to uh, sort of rectify that later. Next week, we'll see that. This is going to come around. Mephibosheth is going to come back into David's life. But this was a very quick judgment on David's part. It's hard for me to fault him because there's a lot going on. But um, I don't think commentators differ. I don't think Mephibosheth ever turned on David. I think there was no donkey left, honestly. And I don't think Mephibosheth could walk. Right. I think he was stuck where he was. So then you get this whole thing with Shimei, uh, one of the household of Saul who is cursing David, throwing stones at him as David is walking along this path, and David lets him. He allows it. He says in verse 11, leave him alone. It's kind of the middle of verse 11. And let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me, and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. So he tells him to leave him alone. He's trusting the Lord. When they do get to the Jordan River then, where we stop, verse 14, it says, and there he refreshed himself. And what was interesting about that word refresh to me, I don't know, but it can also mean to be breathed upon, that word. And I just kind of loved, David does write a psalm 
during this time. And I just loved that idea of just God breathing into him, refreshing him, Holy Spirit breathing upon him. That is, that is how we're refreshed, is the Lord. That is the most refreshing thing we can do, spend time with God. We spend a lot of time doing that. We have like a half hour to do application, but I thought that was important because this, this is a hard story. So the first thing I think we need to apply, we're going to go right back. The Genesis, uh, I feel like you all said it. We're going to go right, right back to David in the beginning here, how he did not confront the sin of his children, right? Not the way he should have. And whether he's coming at it because he just felt totally defeated, didn't feel like he was qualified, he had messed up so much, who was he? Okay, I'm just going to go ahead and give you this principle because you're going to get it. Experiencing the consequences of sin does not disqualify you from teaching the consequences of sin. Experiencing the consequences of sin does not disqualify you from teaching the consequences of sin. Experiencing the consequences of sin, I know it's a big sentence, does not disqualify you from teaching the consequences of sin. The enemy would like us to think that we're totally disqualified. Oh, you have no right to say anything. You really messed up. You, you messed up. You shouldn't say anything. That is so not true. So at the end of chapter 12, David had been fully restored to the Lord. He had been reconciled. He had the crown on again. He was back fighting. You go back to that end of that chapter, it ends really well. He'd been restored. But when we're experiencing the consequences of sin, see, that's the problem is we can be restored to the Lord and still experience the consequences of our sin. But when we experience that, we make, it feels like the Lord doesn't like us right now. Because if the Lord liked us, good things would be happening, right? We get down on ourselves. And we don't teach. We don't teach then. But who's the best person to teach the next generation? The one who's gone through it. The one who says, I did this, and this is what happened to me. But whenever you teach the consequences of sin, I think the coolest part is that you get to teach mercy and grace along with that. I mean, I don't know why David didn't share his story. Why he didn't. Look. Don't, don't look at my sin. Yes, these are the things that are happening, guys, but let's fight against this, you know? Look at the Lord. He forgave me. And just even sharing that with Tamar, why he didn't offer that to Tamar. God made me new again. God cleansed me. He, he uses the, those terms in Psalm 51 and just about creating me new out of nothing. He could have shared that with his daughter, too. You know, just... I think we disqualify ourselves really quickly sometimes because we think, well, I shouldn't, I have no room to talk about that. If you have struggled with something and the Lord has walked you through it, you have, you better believe you have every right to talk about it. And you need to talk about it because you're the one who needs to share that with others. Yes. Right. 
Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, so, yeah, we focus on ourselves instead of focusing on the Lord. Oh, yeah. And that tactic works a lot, <laughs> for sure. So that's the first thing that I want to apply tonight is just teaching those consequences. We can speak up. You know, we go through things. We, have, we all have things in our past that have been hard. We can teach the next generation as they walk through it, too. It does. Just totally agree. Yeah. I know we don't want to admit our sin. Mm-hmm. You know, that feels yucky. We'd rather the Lord removes it from the east and from the west, and so we just never talk about it again. <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's, let's just do that. Yeah, exactly. Now, the second thing I want to look at tonight, for as far as application goes, uh, 2 Samuel 13, Tamar's words. I want to talk about Tamar just a little bit. I don't want to just gloss over this. In verses 12 and 13, she says, No, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. And then listen to what she says. As for me, where could I carry my shame? Shame. Where could I carry my shame? I think that is still a question we all face at some point. Still a question we struggle with. Where can I carry my shame? Let me tell you where you can carry it. You all know where you can carry it. You can carry it to the Lord. You can carry it straight to the cross and dump it at the feet of Jesus who pled and died for you so you didn't have to carry that shame anymore. So you could be a new creation, right? At the cross, Jesus makes right both the wrongs that we've done and the wrongs that have been done to us. Jesus makes both of those right at the cross. The things that we've done and the things that have been done to us. Nothing gets past the cross. There's nothing that he's like, whoop, that one made it by. (laughs) That doesn't happen. It all stops there if we let it. So there's quite possibly, even in this group, some of you carrying some really heavy, shameful things. Maybe sexual sin. Maybe things that have been done to you in the past. It's horrible. It's wrong. It makes you feel disgusting. Or you know someone who's been through that. I mean, this is a very real thing in our world, especially among us women. So I did not want to go over this too quickly. But even then, Jesus is the one who still says to you, let me take care of that. Let me me take care of that right there. When the door was bolted behind Tamar, in verse 13, she puts ashes on her head, she tears her long robe, and she runs away weeping. She's broken. She's completely broken. Some of you can probably relate. She's been disturbingly dishonored. Her virginity has been destroyed. Her life is in ruins all of a sudden. She didn't know it. She just went to bake a cake. 2 Samuel 13, 20 says she lived a desolate woman in Absalom's house. What hope was left for her? Really very, very little. Very little. And I just imagine this breaking Christ's heart. Breaking his heart. It was not time for him yet to come. It was like a thousand years still where he could come and take care of these things at the cross, right? So I just thought this was so cool. I think you guys are going to love this. In Luke 4, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, this is right at the start of his ministry, when he enters his hometown 
he reads from the book of Isaiah. And he chooses specifically Isaiah 61. This is one of the first things he did upon his ministry. Isaiah 61, just listen to the words, 1 through 4, say this. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Just, just envision Jesus speaking this himself. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. I just think he could not wait to say these words. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. This is some of the first scripture he ever read in public. Listen to this. To grant to those who mourn in Zion. You know, all this mourning going on in Zion. Zion is Jerusalem. Oh, man, how I just think he could not wait to get here and read this. This is what I'm here to do, he said. To give them, listen to this, a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. Oh, did he have Tamar in mind at that point? I just wonder. Give them a beautiful headdress and said, this is what I want to do, said Jesus. The oil of gladness instead of mourning. And listen to this. The garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. They all rip their garments. And he's like, no, I want to give you a garment of praise. I want to give you a robe of righteousness. I came to turn this stuff upside down. I'm going to reverse all of it. Verse 4, they shall build up the ancient ruins. She's ruined. She was ruined. Jesus says, I'm going to build up those ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. He came to make it all right. Isn't that so cool? How you get those specific words is, I am going to replace those ashes on your head with a beautiful headdress. You feel like you're desolate, Tamar. I'm coming, baby. I'm coming, and I'm going to make it right. And I just love that he read this. It's the first thing he read. If you go on then to chapter 62 in Isaiah, it gets even better. He, he's talking to the nation of Israel, but I think we can also specifically apply these verses to us individually. And he says in verse 2, The nation shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory, and you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give, and you shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. Okay, listen to this. And I just again was like, did he have Tamar in mind? You shall no more be termed forsaken. And your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called, my delight is in her. And the Hebrew word for that is hefzebah. Hefzebah. My delight is in her. It's spelled H-E-P-H-Z-I-B-A-H. Hefzebah. And then he says, and your land called Mary. Jesus came to rectify the whole thing. The whole thing. I know that wasn't specifically written to Tamar. It hadn't been written yet, actually. Isaiah hadn't come on the scene yet. But had it been, that was healing balm right there. 
And I think the Lord intends for that to be healing balm for us. He came to turn these things upside down. He came to take care of all of that. David could have comforted his daughter if he had chosen to, but he could not have restored her. That's what Jesus does. He can actually restore us. Isaiah 60, 15, Whereas you have been forsaken and hated, with no one passing through, I will make you majestic forever, a joy from age to age. Totally reverses things. It reverses it. I love that song right now by Elevation Worship called Graves into Gardens. I could dance to that one. We were talking about dancing earlier. Oh, I cranked that thing up because it's so true. Where there's ruins, where there's destruction, where there's graves, he turns it into gardens. And it's only, it's only him that can do that. This is the power of the gospel right here. And it's for everybody. It's for everybody. It's so cool. Hephzibah. Okay, here's your second principle. Jesus alone can turn the devastated into the delighted. Jesus alone can turn the devastated into the delighted. If you've been horribly wronged in your life in some way, and it doesn't have to be this, there's a lot of different avenues that can happen, that is not the end of your story. That's not the end of your story. Jesus can turn the devastated into the delighted. It's certainly a part of your story. Those things don't just go away. But your story is redemption. That's your story. That's what the gospel gives, gives us all the same story, right? Redemption is our story. This is the hope we can offer people. Now, to experience that fully, though, to experience God's delight in us, you've got to follow him. You've got to spend time with him. You've got to experience him. You've got to allow him to do that. He will do it fully in eternity, but you've got to allow him to do it now. Turn those things upside down. Make him right. Restore you. And sometimes that might mean he might take you off the beaten path. <laughs> might mean that you're going to have to go against the grain in society might mean hard things, might mean like David here, he's going to get exiled from Jerusalem again for a little bit, <laughs> might mean you've got to take some paths that are hard, might mean you still have to deal with the consequences of your sin, just like David, but God was with him. Now, there's a big term right now called cancel culture, right? <laughs> Everybody's canceling everything, like Dr. Seuss is the latest thing, certain books to get canceled. You don't, they don't like you, they cancel you, you know, that's the whole thing. Okay. I kind of feel like Absalom is just trying to cancel David. That's where that comes into play here. <laughs> He's trying to cancel him. We already talked about how he tried to make himself look really good, trying to steal the hearts of the people. We've got this big conspiracy going on uh, with him and the people in Israel. Absalom's trying to cancel David. But can you cancel the Lord's anointed? No. Can you cancel righteousness? No. Can you get rid of God? No, <laughs> but can things get hard for God's people? Yes. Can we still walk with God even when things are hard? Yes. And is God still with us even when things are hard? Yes. Okay, look at verse 7. Well, we might skip over this actually because I think we talked about it pretty well. Absalom's conspiracy is what we were going to read to you there, but his conspiracy is growing stronger. 
the people with Absalom keep increasing. This just does not look good for David at all, right? It, from a human perspective, it looks like David is going to be finished at this point. Absalom's taking over. What hope is there left for David? So what's happening here in the narrative is that it's setting up for us a choice There's for those who are in Jerusalem and the outskirts in Israel. And it's really, it's offering us a spiritual picture of the choice that we have today. When things go lopsided, and I think this, we're going to get into this more next week, but when things go lopsided, who will we follow? Are we going to follow the one that looks good, one that made earthly promises to us, or the one that's the Lord's anointed, Jesus? Which one are we going to follow? So we're going to see some of that fallout next week of those who chose to follow Absalom. We saw this with Saul, those who chose to follow Saul, chose to follow David. Now we're going to see it again with Absalom. We've got to keep choosing to follow the Lord's anointed, no matter how hard it might get. It might get hard, but we need to stick with the Lord because he's going to take care of those things. He's going to take care of those hard things, okay? Now, all right, let's see here. I'm going to skip some of that. Um... Okay, look now at verse 18 of chapter 15. We're going to look again at who goes with David as David is walking out of the city. I promise we're going to bring this full circle and you guys are going to love it. All right, verse 18. All his servants passed by him, all the Cherethites, Pelethites, and all the ites. Okay, it's all the ites. They're all going with him, right? But who is this group of people that's going? It's a bunch of Gentiles. It's a bunch of Gentiles that are going with David. What a picture of that. It's the Gentiles following the Lord's anointed in this chapter right here. These foreign converts stick with David even when it looks like David is a bad bet. But they are more loyal to David than most of the Israelites are at this point. Interesting picture developing, right? So at the same time, what that gives us spiritually is a picture that we need to stick with Christ even when it looks like his cause is weak on earth. It might look like his cause is pretty weak right now. It is not. It is not at all. And I find so much hope in that. Verse 21 from uh, the Gittite guy is the correct answer no matter who you are. He said, wherever my Lord the king shall be, whether for death or for life, there also will your servant be. That's the correct answer. Where you go, I will go. Doesn't matter. I'm going to stick with the Lord's anointed. And then you see in the next section, next section, you see the priests coming along. So you see the religious community coming along with David. Now I want to draw a parallel here that I think will tie it all together. All of this is happening to David because of his sin, right? This is the fallout of the consequences of his sin. David is being exiled from his home in Jerusalem due to the consequences of his sin. Does that remind you of anything? Israel. They were exiled from their home in Jerusalem because of the consequences of their sin. So we're getting a miniature picture right now of that. Next week, we're going to see God bring him back. Okay. But right now, he's being exiled due to the consequences of his sin. Verse 23 says, As they were leaving, those who were with David went weeping. Who else would leave the city weeping? The Israelites. 
they would one day, and about, when was it? Four or 500 years from now, from that time, that's like 1,000 at that BC at that time. So a few hundred more years are gonna go by. They're gonna all leave weeping due to the consequences of their sin. But look who else is weeping in verse 30 of chapter 15. Verse 30, but David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. David is weeping as he ascends the Mount of Olives. Who else walked up the Mount of Olives weeping? Do you know? Jesus. Jesus did. Luke 19, 36 through 41. Luke 19, let me see here. This is speaking of Jesus. And as he rode along, this is the triumphal entry. They spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives. So he is coming in the direct route that David left. Okay. The whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, <clears throat> saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. He wept. He's weeping coming into the city. David was weeping going out of the city. Now get this. While David wept on his way out, due to the consequences of his sin, Jesus wept on the way in due to the consequences of our sin. Oh, I have goosebumps. <laughs> Do you guys see that? Same road, same path. I mean, I don't know if exactly the same path, but pretty close, pretty close path, okay? On the very road, David left because there was nothing more he could do. There was nothing more he could do. His greater son, Jesus Christ, would come in because there was still absolutely something he could do. David left. There was nothing more he could do. Jesus came in because there was still something he could do. Isn't that so cool? And Jesus was not going to leave until it was done, until he took care of all the things that hurt us all the sin we suffer from, all the yucky stuff, he was not going to leave until he took care of all that and was able to bind up the broken hearted. You guys, the consequences of sin are huge in this story. But praise the Lord, this is not the end of the Bible. This is, Second Samuel is not the end of the story, right? Not even close. Even though it seems like things just keep getting worse for David, there was a, there's, a, there's a redemption end. There's a redemption end for all of us, right? But let's not pass over also the fact that he's being persecuted on his way out, right? So that little part in chapter 16 was Shimei throwing rocks at him, cursing him, calling, his na calling him names, right? David faced some persecution on his way out of town. Shemiz 
throwing things at him, cursing him, cursing stuff, mud. I have a feeling it was like salt in a wound for David, hearing all of that all over again. But let me read to you 2 Samuel 16, 12. Listen to this, 16, 12. It may be, David says this, it may be about Shimei. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me. Does the Lord look on the wrong done to us? Yes. Yes, he does. Did he look upon the wrong done to Tamar? Yes, he did. Did he look upon the wrong that David did? Yes. He looked upon the wrong David did. He looked the wrong, at the wrong done to David. He looked upon the wrong Tamar did, and he looked upon the wrong done to her. And he looks upon all of our wrongs, too. He sees the ones we've done. He also sees the ones that have been done to us. And he says, let me take care of that. I rode into Jerusalem weeping so I could take care of it. I came. My, David had nothing. There was nothing left he could do, so he left. I came, Jesus says. Let me take care of that. While David endured the insults of man on his way out, Jesus endured the insults of man once he got in. Why? So that he could look upon us and say, that hurts, doesn't it? Yeah, I know. I know firsthand how bad that hurts. That hurts. I know it does. So let me take care of that. Come to me and let me replace your mourning with gladness and your ashes with a beautiful headdress and your torn garments with robes of righteousness and your filthiness with cleanliness. I know it hurts, he says. He knows that. He knows it. And he says, let me take care of that. I want to take care of that. That's why I came. That's why I read Isaiah 61 when I got here. Because I really want to take care of that. So your last principle, the good news of Jesus Christ is that he can take care of that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Whatever that is, he can take care of that. The good news of Jesus Christ is that he can take care of that. He says to you, if you trust me, I'll take care of that. If you'll commit your way to me, we can change this whole ending. It doesn't have to end this way. I'm not done writing your story. Yes, there are absolutely consequences to sin, but Jesus paid for the sin, paid for it. So don't let the sin reign in your story. Let Jesus reign in your story. Let him take care of that. And then you can have this amazing story that you can share of how God took care of it, how he's glorified in that. So that's what I saw emerge out of this story, where David fled, Jesus came in to take care of everything that had unraveled. A lot of things unraveled this week. There's a lot of wrong done in David's household, a lot of shame going on. But Jesus, a thousand years later, came in the same way David left, 
so that he could take care of the whole mess. And he's still taking care of it. How'd we do? Good? Good stuff, huh? Man, the hardest passages are sometimes the most rewarding. So I'm going to warn you, this next week's not any easier. But I'm telling you, I can't wait for the Lord to show us something next week, right? If he can show up and show us this this week, I'm excited. So let me pray, and I'll let you guys go. Jesus, thank you. Thank you, thank you for taking care of all of our mess, for making it right, for turning graves into gardens, Lord spiritual fruit where we didn't think anything could ever grow you can do that you reverse all of it taking our shame and turning it into honor taking our ashes building something with it giving us a beautiful headdress to wear instead lord you're awesome thank you thank you lord i just pray that these women would just bring it to you whatever it is they leave it with you that they let you take care of it and it's in jesus name i pray amen